This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. Welcome to Democracy Matters, the podcast of the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University. I'm your co-host, Kara Ong Whaley, Associate Director. I'm Logan Ziegler, Program Coordinator at JMU Civic. I'm Wyatt Blevins, and I'm a Democracy Fellow here at JMU Civic. And I am a Public Policy Administration major, as well as a Political Science major with a minor in History. In this episode, we talk with Aaron Shapiro, who graduated from James Madison University in 2006 with a degree in Business Administration. While he was at JMU, Aaron participated in the simultaneous membership program, which allowed him to enlist in the Virginia National Guard while simultaneously participating in JMU's ROTC program. After graduation, Aaron was commissioned as a finance officer in the Army Reserves, and as you'll hear, he served in active duty as a dispersing officer at Camp Eggers in Kabul, Afghanistan. We invite you to engage in the conversation with us on social media, at JMU Civic on Twitter and Facebook, and at JMU Duke's Vote on Instagram. Enjoy the episode. Aaron, can you start by sharing why you joined the military? And this next question comes from Colonel Swain. Did you realize what you were getting into when you joined the ROTC at JMU? You know, I came to JMU from Randolph-Macon Academy, which is just down the street um, in Front Royal, Virginia. It's a private military boarding school. Um, So, you know, I had sort of like a basic sense of what, you know, the day-to-day life could potentially be. But, you know, I didn't go to that military school on my own accord. I was sent there. Uh, So by the time I graduated, you know, my my top priority was really having sort of the freedom to make my own decisions and and to demonstrate that agency to my folks. Um, And, you know, that's somewhat paradoxically led me or influenced my decision to join the military. Um, So I I decided to enlist in the Virginia National Guard, which is just, you know, their, their armory is just down the street in Harrisonburg. Um, and, uh, I also joined the simultaneous membership program, which allowed me to, uh, participate in the ROTC program and earn a commission as a reserve officer following graduation. So I did those things simultaneously. Um, but I mean, I guess, you know, my decision to join the military wasn't based off some sort of, uh, idealized notion of service or duty or anything like that. Like some of my some of my fellow ROTC classmates uh, may have been, may have had. Uh, so, you know, looking back, I guess it's sort of hard to characterize my decision to join as anything but really naive. Uh, but it was, it was absolutely the best decision I've ever made. Where were you on September 11th, 2001? And what do you remember about how that day has changed you? Yeah, I mean, so September 11, 2001, is almost 20 years ago today, it's September 3rd. And I was 16 around, I think, in, in high school. And it was it was like a beautiful September day, just like today is. Um, and, you know, I remember being sort of excited for my birthday, which is just around the corner here on September 13th. Um, so that was sort of what I was focused on. And I remember school had just started. I think we we're in our first period uh, when the attacks had started happening. And, you know, you could tell that something wasn't quite right as teachers were sort of being interrupted, uh, as other faculty, faculty members sort of entered into the classroom and they were going back and into the hallway and, and, and 
you know, conversing with each other. So we had a sense of something not being normal just at the, you know, in the beginning of the day. Um, and then eventually, I guess the decision was made that, you know, the teachers would bring the, the big TVs in onto the, in, into the classrooms uh, and, and everybody just watched the news unfold. Um, you know, I, you know, like many Americans, I think my f- immediate sense was that, you know, when I watched the footage of the first plane hitting the tower, it was, it sort of seemed like that was just a horrible accident. Um, but when the second plane hit, it seemed like that was, uh, you know, a, a big turning point and, and sort of the mood, mood darkened substantially. And, and we just knew that something, something was wrong. Um, and, you know, I was 16, this was sort of before the internet really. Um, and I didn't have a cell phone. So I remember wanting to uh, get in touch with my dad. Uh, and he was at the time uh, on vacation in Maine. And I remember it being, you know, super difficult to make a call. All the, all the lines were busy. We waited, I sort of waited in line to, um, to use the landline in, in the office couldn't get in touch with him. And sort of interestingly, in, in the weeks following 9-11, my dad had been contacted by the FBI because as it turned out, he was staying at a hotel in Maine where two of the hijackers had uh, flown out of. So that was sort of a interesting uh, experience for him. But, you know, when I was, you know, so at, at the time I was only 16. So, you know, the, the concept of terrorism was completely esoteric and foreign to me. Um, I really had no concept of how that attack would change my life. Um, you know, once it became clear that, you know, it was sort of tantamount to an act of war, uh, I guess I supported the idea of America bringing its enemies to justice. And I think that was sort of a broad based opinion at the time. Um, but, you know, besides feeling a heightened sense of patriotism, which, you know, most Americans did feel, uh, I didn't feel a particular call to duty in the military. Um, my family doesn't have really a strong history of military service. So, you know, the idea of joining the military to fight for the country was not immediately self-evident to me. Um, but, you know, I think my perspective on military service and duty uh, shifted as I enlisted in the National Guard back in, in 2003. Um, and, you know, at that point, 2003, there were, you know, folks were already on their first or second deployment. Um, the Virginia National Guard had already deployed to Guantanamo Bay and it, uh, had deployed to Afghanistan. And, and some of those soldiers had started, you know, had, had sustained injuries. Um, so I guess it was sort of at that point that it occurred to me that, you know, the cost of war was spread pretty thin across society. Um, but I mean, I guess that's all to say that, you know, 9-11 itself, I don't think directly influenced me or changed my life in any uh, meaningful way other than the fact that, you know, enlisting in the military, joining ROTC in a post 9-11 uh, era, that I think had a bigger impact on my life than 9-11 itself. Can you share some of your experiences serving in the global war on terror, global overseas contingency operations, and ongoing conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan? And how did those experiences impact you? Yeah, so I, I um, 
was commissioned as a reserve officer. So, you know, I had a, a civilian job and I was just sort of drilling as a, as a, as a reserve soldier. Um, and I remember in uh, late 2008, our reserve unit received mobilization orders. Uh, and those, those orders indicated that we're to deploy to Kabul, Afghanistan, which was around June, 2009. Um, so, you know, since we were in the reserves, there was a one month sort of mobilization period where the, the unit would be activated from its reserve status. And during that period, we were to, you know, practice on our tactics and qualifying our weapons and, and uh, take care of administrative issues and so forth. Um, and we were also to use this time to train on the Army's accounting and finance systems um, because I was a finance officer and I was in a finance unit. So uh, those systems were the, the way in which we would transact the Army's business. Um, so I remember we took a commercially chartered plane to Kuwait and stayed there for you know a week or two before taking a uh, military aircraft to Bagram Air Force Base. And, you know, I think one of the one of the things that really stands out to me, I mean, this is sort of a weird thing to stand out. But uh, when I arrived in Bagram, I was greeted by the 82nd Airborne's uh, finance company commander, and he was the outgoing unit that we were to replace. And he wanted me to uh, come to the finance office to pick up what he called supplies. And I, you know, said that I would need those for when I was at Camp Eggers and by supplies, he meant cash. Uh, so, so he had over $5 million and just bricks of cash bundled several feet high um, that I was to count uh, and take custody of. And, you know, I, I, I had practiced this during the mobilization period and I was expecting to be dealing with large sums of money. But, you know, I was I don't know, 25 years old taking $5 million in cash. You know, it was a a shocking amount of money. Um, but you know, that was my job. So while I was in Afghanistan, it was my primary duty to pay, uh, local national contracts. We funded something called the commander's, uh, emergency response program. And we also, you know, made casual payments to soldiers and so forth. But really our primary responsibility was to maintain a bank account at the Afghanistan international bank to, to pay, the larger local national contractors. Uh, the biggest contracts, like the main DOD defense contracts, those were handled stateside. Um, and I, I had calculated that by the time I left Afghanistan, I had paid out over a, a billion dollars in contracts via electronic fund transfer and cash. And, you know, this seemed like an unbelievable amount of money to me, but I've seen that the, the total cost of the war was something in the you know, $2 trillion. So, you know, a billion dollars over $2 trillion is really just a rounding error. But to me, it was a, a, a massive sum of money. But, you know, I think the thing that stood out the most in terms of uh, my time over in Afghanistan was just like the camaraderie that I had with the, the soldiers and sailors that, that, that I worked with. You know, we, we were happy to do our job. There was a sense of like mission that we were accomplishing something important. So we we're doing 15 hour days, you know, six days a week. And that was, you know, I mean, there were, there were times where that was tough, but we sort of enjoyed doing it and we enjoyed being finance officers and soldiers. You know, I think some of that was because, you know, people would come in with problems that they had either with pay or contracting and we'd be able to help them. 
Um, and, you know, that sometimes manifested itself into interesting opportunities for myself and soldiers where officers would come in and they had they needed their problems fixed, they're pleased with our services, uh, you know, and in turn, they would invite us uh, on interesting missions or initiatives that weren't really within the scope of, you know, a finance soldier's traditional duties. So, you know, our, our, our soldiers were able to you know, attend different humanitarian projects. And, you know, they had meetings with State Department officials. And, uh, you know, everybody was just trying to help each other. Um, so, you know, I think that my time in Afghanistan, while I was in a support unit, not on the front line, was it was gratifying um, professionally and, and personally. I want to ask a follow-up question. Given your experience carrying money and working on contracts, I wonder if you could speak to the recent report from the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction that looks at the waste, fraud, and abuse in the reconstruction program. Yeah, I mean, I haven't read that report, and you know, I don't really have a, a great sense of uh, you know, the, the scale or scope of any fraud or abuse, but, you know, I, just from my perspective, at least like as a, as a finance officer, you know, the, the systems that we had in place in order to disperse, you know, significant sums of money were, you know, they're sort of frankly antiquated and, uh, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be shocking to me that, you know, a, a contractor could come up with a, a way in which they sort of, tried to submit duplicate payments or, you know, came up with fake invoices. You know, I think it's the possibility of fraud is, is great in, in those circumstances, but I don't really have a good, you know, sense of, of uh, the scale or scope, really. Aaron, what do you want the public to appreciate about the United States' military response to the September 11th, 2001 attacks that are lacking in the mainstream narratives? Yeah, you know, I mean, so I, I was thinking about this question. I think the thing that initially struck me was that, you know, like I said before, there sort of seemed to be a consensus about America's response in the immediate aftermath. Um, but I think, you know, as the war sort of dragged on and the mission shifted from, you know, sort of avenging what happened during 9-11 towards sort of nation building, uh, public opinion started to splinter. Um, you know, I don't, I'm not really following the mainstream narrative that closely in terms of, you know, the response to 9-11. Uh, but the one thing that has stood out to me, at least with respect to recent events, was sort of the newfound attention to the sacrifice that service members are making. Like, like for example, um, the news media has paid considerable attention to the 13 service members that that died at Hamid Karzai uh, International Airport. And that was horrific and tragic, and they very well should be paying close attention to that. Um, it's, a, it's a tragedy of massive proportion, but service members have been sort of paying that cost all along for the last 20 years. Um, and for most Americans, you know, Afghanistan is just sort of a distant afterthought um, as they go about their days. So I, I think that's sort of has stood out to me in, in recent weeks. Um, you know, soldiers were dying and sustaining life-changing injuries. And, and, and even more than that, they're just suffering untold family pressure that uh, the average American just wasn't aware of. Um, 
So, you know, the other thing that occurred to me is that, you know, when when most Americans think about the cost of war, they reflect on it in terms of dollars spent or, you know, potentially in terms of American service members that have died. Um, and they don't really consider things like death of local civilians or, you know, the internally displaced people that are fleeing battlegrounds um, or the economic costs of, of, uh, of war for, you know, uh, people in, in Afghanistan or Iraq or even back home, which all of those have had massive effects. Um, so, From your perspective, what have been the consequences of U.S. military operations in response to the September 11th, 2001 terrorist attacks for domestic and U.S. foreign policy? Yeah, you know, I'm not a foreign policy expert or a public policy expert, just uh, as a lay person, uh, I would say that, you know, I think that most people thought that Afghanistan, the war in Afghanistan was was justified at first, um, you know, and it sent that message that we weren't, America wasn't going to allow uh, other countries to provide safe harbor to terrorists. Um, but, you know, along the line, our, our mission to root out Al Qaeda and other terrorist, ne- terrorist networks sort of morphed into this nation nation building and, and democracy and governance mission um and you know i think in the end our prolonged occupation um and desire to bring out about democracy didn't really seem to provide meaningful results at least that's my sense and i also think that you know most americans are sort of tired of long-term costly wars and would rather spend our our time and resources uh, you know building infrastructure or bridges and roads in the u.s As we engage in this conversation in early September 2021, the Taliban has retaken Afghanistan following U.S. troop withdrawal. There are also ongoing attacks on U.S. facilities and on the U.S.-led coalition in Iraq. As someone who has experienced the conflicts firsthand on the ground, what concerns do you have about the future of Afghanistan and Iraq and the Middle East more broadly? Yeah, I mean, I'm glad you guys asked this question, and I've been I've been thinking about it before you reached out to me for the interview myself as I as I sort of watched what was happening in Afghanistan. It's just it's just heartbreaking. I mean, um, I was just shocked by the speed at which the Taliban was able to regain control. You know, we sort of like all along, it was like a it was like an underlying joke that, you know, we, we knew that the, this, the Taliban was sort of just waiting us out and you know they think in terms of generations and we think in terms of years and and so forth and that, that's sort of something that soldiers discuss while they're over there but you know it seemed like it was a matter of weeks that the taliban just completely took over the country um and it's been really frankly hard for me to process um it it makes me wonder about the political and military decisions that have been made over the last 20 years um it's sort of hard for me to believe that this what seemed to be a really hasty exit was our best military option um and it's really it's really also agonizing to hear about you know the human rights advocates and and military interpreters or even frankly american citizens that have been left behind um you know, I, I appreciate that, you know, the Band-Aid needed to be ripped off eventually, but I would have thought that America would have done a better job of protecting its most vulnerable allies and friends. Um, 
and maybe it was a foregone conclusion that the Taliban would have regained control, but I sure thought it would have been a slower advance than it was. Um, so, you know, the things that come to mind for me is like, did we, did we know all along that Afghan forces would just immediately collapse without us continuing to, to put money into those programs? I mean, and then I wonder, you know, how long did we know that the situation was just completely untenable yet remained? Um, and then ultimately, like I've been battling with the question of what was the point? Um, and I don't have a good answer to any of those questions. So, I mean, in terms of Afghanistan's future, I, I hope that the Taliban will rule in a more moderate way than they had previously, but I'm not holding my breath for that. You know, I've seen images of Afghans standing in line at local banks waiting to withdraw their deposits, you know, so I hope the economy doesn't collapse. Um, and, but I fear that, you know, that they, they're probably hooked on 20 years of American stimulus at this point. Um, and I, you know, I hope that uh, essential services are restored to a, a acceptable level. And I hope we can get the, the remaining Americans and our friends out of there safely. Democracy requires shared sacrifice and gratitude to those who have sacrificed. We thank you for the sacrifices you have made. While we recognize the fundamental reality that sacrifice is an unequal burden, what advice do you have for individuals who have not served in the military for how they can contribute to preserving, strengthening, and reimagining democracy? I don't think that you need to serve in the military or government to be an advocate for democracy. You know, um, you can do what you guys are doing. Um, you can volunteer in your community or with organizations that you're passionate about, work at non-governmental organizations, or, or frankly, you can protest against your government uh, if you think that they're doing something that's not in the public's best interest. Uh, or call your representative to inform them of, of issues that are uh, important to you. But I mean, I think the most important thing is just to, to vote, make your voice heard. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Democracy Matters. Editing and production was done by Jacqueline Dobrin, JMU Civics Communications Specialist. Randy Bednikus, Director of Digital Marketing at JMU, does the syndication for us. Our theme song is Sometimes It Shines by Pictures of the Floating World. Be sure to follow us on social media. You can tweet your questions and ideas to us at JMU Civic, and we'll address them in a future episode. You can also connect and engage with us on Facebook at JMU Civic. Learn more about the James Madison Center for Civic Engagement at James Madison University on our website at j.mu civic. Until next time.